If you would please find Matthew chapter 2 in your copy of God's Word. There are certain things that we all have to have in order for it to be Christmas. If those things do not intersect our lives in some way, Christmas has just not been Christmas. For me, they involve food and music. I have to hear certain songs and I have to eat certain foods in order for it to be Christmas. So, for instance, in our home, it cannot be Christmas unless Julie makes these sausage balls. So she will sometime this week make these sausage balls, and beginning probably a week from today, I will eat an ungodly amount of sausage balls for breakfast. I mean, when I do come in here for worship services next week, I will waddle filled with sausage balls up here. Got to have sausage balls. And then uh, because I'm a redneck and we're just redneck people, we have fried quail and pheasant and biscuits and gravy and eggs and all that good stuff for uh, Christmas morning meals. So that probably sickened you, but man, let me take my mouth water just thinking about it. Got to have food and you have to have certain kinds of music. And honestly, my connection with music goes all the way back to growing up. My, my dad, you may remember, uh, managed a radio station while I was growing up. And so I had access to literally hundreds of different Christmas albums. Occasionally, I'd sneak one out and take it home so I could listen to it. So I'd take one of these albums home and an album for you kids or circle things. You put them on this deal, spins around, you can hear music. I'd go home, get on my stereo. And the one that I probably listened to the most was Christmas with Andy Williams and the Williams Brothers. Now, you may not have heard that album. By the way, if you can find it start to finish, it's terrific. But you have heard the first track on the album. The, the song is, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. And it's two notes into it. You know exactly what it is. It has that kind of 60s wall of sound, sound. And you just can't listen to it without feeling, you know, happiness. It makes you happy to hear that song. And yet, Christmas is not the most wonderful time of year for some people. It's a time of year that reminds us of loss. It's the time of year that reminds us of family dysfunction. It's the time of year that reminds us of loneliness, especially in 2020 when the pandemic has caused us to be more isolated from family and friends than what we would normally be. Events have been forced upon us over which we have no control. That's true of all of us, regardless of the year. And the end result of those events is some kind of feeling of sadness, and it's heightened at Christmas. And frankly, when we hear that song and we're in that mindset, we want to tell Andy and his brothers, go take a hike. But there's another kind of sadness, a sadness that is a choice, or perhaps better stated, it's the result of bad choices, the result of sin. And this kind of sadness is especially bitter at Christmas. Maybe you've ruined relationships, maybe even your own family because of sin. Or maybe your pursuit of things that you thought would make you happy have left you feeling surprisingly empty, and that hollowness is deeper at Christmas. Or perhaps you had certain things that you counted on to keep you safe and secure, and those things have failed you. And Christmas seems for you, if you're in that kind of situation, something of an exercise in futility. You're just done with it. You are sad. 
My point is that sadness comes through events that we can't control. It's just something that goes along with life. And sometimes sadness comes because of the very predictable outcome of choices we make. But both kinds of sadness are present in the environment surrounding the first Christmas because the purpose of, happy, of, of Christmas is to lead us out of both kinds of sadness into an indescribable joy. And that's what we're going to talk about today from Matthew 2. I, I hope you've already found it in your copy of God's Word. Would you stand, please, as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning? Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Then Herod the king heard this and was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they thought, saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. The four books of the Bible at the beginning of the New Testament that chronicle the life of Christ all talk about this one solitary life from various unique perspectives. And as such, we have a full rounded picture of who Jesus was, the events surrounding his life, because you have these various perspectives. But they all approach the subject of Jesus differently. So, for instance, only three of the four allude to the birth of Christ at all, and only two give any kind of real detail to it. And the two that do, Matthew and Luke, give profoundly different emphasis to different aspects of the birth of Christ. So, for instance, Luke devotes seven verses to the birth of Jesus. Matthew only devotes part of one verse to the actual event of the birth of Jesus. Luke focuses, focuses in on, on Mary and the angelic appearance to Mary and focuses in on the angelic appearance to the shepherds, but Matthew doesn't mention any of those things. Instead, Matthew focuses in on the visit of the wise men from the east. In fact, it holds more real estate in the chapters that deal with Christ's life in the book of Matthew than any other single event, and Luke doesn't refer to them at all. So it would seem that if you really want to get to the heart 
of what it is that Matthew is doing in relaying to us the events surrounding the birth of Christ, you really have to unpack this, this whole visit of these wise men from the east to Bethlehem guided by a star. There's not a lot of detail there that would help us really color in the, the, the lines here so that we can see a, a more full representation of what's going on. So let's just pause for a bit and make sure that we appreciate everything that Matthew is alluding to here. We are told that Jesus was born, and we understand from Matthew that that took place during the rule of Herod the Great, probably around 4 B.C., and when that happened, these wise men from the east came looking for the one who was born king of the Jews. Now, the word that Matthew actually uses to describe these wise men is a word that we hear a lot this time of year. It's the word magi. That's actually the word in Matthew's language. And in Matthew's time, that word magi referred to people who were interested in dreams and astrology and magic and, and books that were thought to contain mysterious references to the future and the like. In fact, the word used by Matthew here actually goes on uh, to be the, the root word to the English word that we experience today, magic or, or magician. Now, that had a negative connotation, that word magic or magician in the days of the New Testament. In fact, in Acts chapter 8, there's a charlatan that tries to use magic and sorcery to leverage and intimidate people. His name is Simon the Magician. But these men were not charlatans seeking to use tricks to influence or intimidate people for monetary gain. They were from ancient Persia. And in ancient Persia, where the wise men were really coming from, the term magi refers to a priestly class. So they would have been seen as religious leaders, as respected religious leaders in the world in which they lived. They would have been leading figures in the religious court of the Persian kings, and they would have used a variety of things like astrology and magic and proverbial sayings as a means to try to help the king understand the present and to predict the future. So these wise men would have been deeply connected, they would have been wealthy, they would have been sophisticated, and they were very, very pagan in their approach to spirituality and religion. That they were operating from this deeply pagan worldview is evident in what spurred their journey in the first place. They had been prompted to go on this long, arduous journey because they had interpreted an astronomical sign as an indicator that a Jewish king had been born. They saw a star come up in their west and they believed that was coming from the area of Israel, and so they decided they needed to go and see this king. Now, why is it that they saw this star as a sign of the Jewish king? Well, it has to do with how God kind of helped them along their way. When the Jewish people were exiled to Babylon in 586 B.C. because King Nebuchadnezzar had come in and destroyed the city, they took with them their scriptures. Now, I want you to imagine that you are a, uh, a religious leader who looks at, at religious writings to find out new truths about the world. If you were a magi and a brand new set of scriptures come in, 
you're thinking, this is a whole new area of life that I can mine. So why they did not believe that the Jewish scriptures were the word of the one true God, they did find them interesting to read and were seeing what they might learn from them. And they dug into, we know this because of what they do here, one particular verse from the book of Numbers. It comes from Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. I'll read it because I doubt it's anybody's life verse. Here's what it says. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Now, the Jews correctly understood that this meant that a Messiah, a real person, would rise up one day and rule Israel. But from the point of view of the Magi's astrology, they understood it to refer to an actual star that would rise and herald the birth of a Jewish king. Now, I want all of that to just simmer for a little bit in your heart. These men essentially were using astrology to find their way to God. Now, this would be akin to someone showing up in our foyer today and say, you know what, I came to Blue Valley Baptist Church because of something I read in my horoscope. I mean, that would be shocking to us, horrifying to us, and rightly so. Here's the deal. The Old Testament roundly criticizes astrology, says it's a prohibited practice, and to engage in it made one deserving of death. And yet here are these men, disconnected completely from the God of Israel, coming using astrology to find their way to Jesus. What's up? Here's what's up. And this is a little side road here. Matthew is wanting us to understand that God is active in all people in all places to bring all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to his son Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, everyone worships him. And that means that he is intervening even in their disconnected pagan spiritual practices and giving them a hard right turn to bring them to him. If you ever go on a mission trip, you'll know this. Years ago, Julie and I spent some time in China uh, with a medical mission, and the purpose of the medical mission was to gather people from small communities in China and to gain kind of a uh, an inroad into sharing the gospel into certain people's lives. You say, well, how did you know who you could share the gospel with? Well, it was whoever God prepared. You say, well, how did you know who God had prepared? I tell you, folks, this happens all the time in the world of missions. It's just when we're locked in America, we don't know this. Here's what would happen. Someone would show up. They would go through the intake form. Is anything bothering you? Well, my elbow, my knee, whatever. And then one of the questions we would ask is, have you had any nightmares or any dreams that have greatly troubled you? And some of them would say, well, yeah. As a matter of fact, in my dreams, I just feel like these demons from their spirituality, these demons are attacking me. And then some of them would say, in the midst of that attack, someone in a white robe would show up and say that I needed to find someone like you to find out how this wouldn't bother me anymore. And we'd say, come right this way. And we'd share the gospel with them. What's going on? God is intervening in that, that pagan practice of, of religion in China to bring people to himself. This is what Matthew's letting us know. God's everywhere doing all things to bring people to an understanding of Jesus. And so a time came when they saw something in the skies. We don't know what it was. We never will in this life. 
I know that in your papers and in your news stories this week, it says the Christmas star is going to be in the sky because Saturn and Jupiter are lining up together and it's going to be super bright and you know, it's going to be really exciting. But that's not what this was. This was a supernatural occurrence. How do I know that? Because it moved, folks. It had GPS, it had a God positioning system. And it would, it would move. We see this in the story. And it came to rest over where Jesus was. We don't know what this was. But God used the, the faulty understandings of the way things worked of the Magi. And the truth about Jesus to get them to where they needed to be. And so they arrive at the court of Herod the Great. Now, he had been appointed to be the king of Judah by the Roman Senate in 40 BC. And as a result, he began to exercise wild power through executions willy nilly. He, anybody he perceived to be a threat, Anybody he perceived to be a threat to his rule, he'd put him to death. In fact, just a few years before these events, history tells us that he had one of his wives and two of his sons murdered because they viewed, he viewed them as threats to his throne. He was in a, in a stage where he was really kind of spiraling downhill. He had literally executed hundreds in the years building up to Christ's birth. So it goes without saying that when these wise men show up asking about a new king of Israel in Jerusalem, that Jerusalem would be troubled because they wondered, what's this going to lead to and will there be a knock on my door? Herod, in his paranoia, took the news of the birth of a Jewish king seriously as a threat and he proceeded to call together his royal advisors and priests and scribes, experts in the Jewish scriptures and law to see where this child uh, might be if this news were indeed true. And of course, they locate Micah 5 and the prophecy that the child would be born in Bethlehem. Now, because he views such a child as an existential threat, if he exists, he shares the news with the Magi under the guise that he wishes for them to find the child so that he can visit and pay homage to him as well. Now, we all know, as we'll see next week, that was not Herod's plan at all. But the Magi don't know any different, and armed with this new information of where to look, they head out again, and the star reappears for confirmation that they are headed in the right direction, and they rejoice when it comes to rest over the house of the Holy Family, and they pay respects to this new king with extravagant gifts, and the Bible says they worshiped Jesus. Now, it's important to understand we aren't being told that they worshiped Jesus like we worship Jesus. They didn't have that level of understanding just yet. But they were doing more than simply paying their respects. They had been awakened to the fact that there was something unique about this child, a child who had testimony born of him in the stars and whose well-being had become uh, uh, made known to them through dreams that they were having at night. And so off they go, never returning to Herod, and we'll see the rest of the story next week. Now, I hope all of this has been enlightening for you. hope maybe it's kind of helped you see more what's going on in the first 12 verses of Matthew 2. But you may be asking, okay, good, fine, but what does any of this have to do with sadness? And what does any of this have to do with joy? Turns out a lot because it does two things for us. First, it helps us realize the source of sadness, believe it or not. 
It helps us realize the source of sadness. When I began today, I talked about the different kinds of sadness we can feel. Sadness born of circumstances over which we have no control and sadness born over consequences, the natural expected consequences of poor choices and sin. Both are in the background of these verses today. And I want us to first think about a sadness that is born from bad choices. Israel had made a bad choice. The Old Testament book of 1 Samuel tells us of a time when the people of Israel came to Samuel, who functioned kind of like a priestly governor for the people of Israel at the time, and they asked him to appoint them a king, and this is how they say it, like all of the other nations. So they looked around at the world, the geopolitical world around them, and I thought, you know, we just have this guy that's kind of like a a preacher governor, and these people, they have palaces, and they have armies, and they have chariots, and, and they have kings, and, and we want a king like all of them, and when we do have that kind of king, we will be somebody in the world today. This is the next step in our progression as a nation state. Well, when Samuel hears this, he is sickened by it. He's actually infuriated by the request but for really personal reasons. He believes that the people are telling him, Samuel, you're not good enough for us. You're not leading us well enough. And so he takes it very, very personally. But in 1 Samuel 8, 7, God says to him, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. Give them their king. And then he says, For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Here's something that's very, very important to understand. When God calls out and sets up the nation of Israel to be his people, they are meant to function with God as their king. God is the king of Israel. So when these people come to Samuel and say, we want a king like everybody else, they are saying, God won't do anymore. He's invisible. He doesn't have an army that we can see, doesn't have a palace, that we can see, and our prestige is low. What we need is someone we can put our hands on, somebody that can serve as our king physically here on this earth. And so in doing so, they're rejecting God. And the rest of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, which are really designed to be read together, shows the, the, the consequences of that choice. God says, you want a king? I'll give you a king. And almost without exception, they are failures. And the ones that are bright spots always have a chink in their armor. So that the entire nation, by the time you get to 586 B.C., has gone so off the rails that God says, I'm done with you. And they're destroyed. And they are taken into captivity. And even though some of them are able to come back, they are never able to restore their prestige as a nation. And by the time you get to Matthew chapter 1, you have a nation that hasn't really existed for 500 years, laboring under a lunatic king who kills everybody in sight, who is a servant of the most powerful nation that has ever existed to that point. It's as if God is saying at Matthew chapter 2, how's that choice working out for you? And the answer is not very well. The people were experiencing the natural consequence of throwing off God as their king. And yet, 
The people alive in Matthew chapter 1 are living literally a thousand years after that choice. A thousand years after that choice. So it could have been very easy for the people of Israel to say, I'm experiencing the result of a sinful choice made a long time ago that I had nothing to do with. Had I been there, I wouldn't have made that choice, and yet I'm experiencing the result of that. I'm living in the conditions created by sin being present among my people and in my world. So both kinds of sadness are present. You have sadness born of a sinful choice, and you have sadness born just because you're living in a world that has fallen and away from God. And what that means for us is simply this. All of us live in a world that is affected deeply by sin. This world was not meant to operate with the presence of sin. And the things that bring us a great deal of heartbreak any day of the year, but especially at Christmas, thing like, things like loss of people that we love and, and family dysfunction and a whole host of things are the result of the world not being as it should. And we feel that at this time of year, perhaps more deeply than others. But there are other kinds of sadness that we experience every day of the year, but especially at Christmas when we realize the reason my life stinks is because I'm broken. And I'm hopeless. I want to do right. And I want to do good. But I can't. I'm broken. And the result's sadness. My point is this, regardless of our experience of sadness, be it just because we live in a sinful world or because we're living with the consequences of our sinful choices, the source is the same. It's sin. The reason sadness exists in this world is not because of fouled up psychology. It exists because of sin. And, and these verses illustrate but they also illustrate something else for us, which is crucially important. After having realized the source of sadness, we need to make certain to be delivered out of that, that we are worshiping the source of joy. I love verse 10 because Matthew kind of gang tackles the word joy. I mean, he just piles up on it. He tells us that when the wise men saw the star after their encounter with Herod, because it had led them to the Christ, they essentially just spontaneously combusted. I mean, like a preschooler at Chuck E. Cheese, they went nuts. They were so, so excited. Literally, Matthew 2.10 tells us, if I grabbed Matthew's language and just brought it hard and fast into English, it says, they rejoiced with joy great exceedingly. They rejoiced with joy great exceedingly. That's a lot. And it can kind of help you a little bit if you understand that the word for great in Matthew's language is megalon, which gives us our very important English word, mega. So what we're essentially being told here is they experience mega joy. That's a lot. They experienced a lot of joy because they had found the one, listen to me, they had found the one they were looking for. And that one was the source of their joy. 
That he is the preeminent source of joy for all the world's sadness is illustrated by the joy these men, these pagan men, show us. Matthew neither condemns nor sanctions the use of what is essentially magic in determining the location of Christ's birth. That's not his concern here. His concern is to demonstrate the global mission of the Messiah. He likely thought it significant to demonstrate that from the very beginning of the process, God was active everywhere in calling people out of their sin-sourced sadness and to the source of mega joy. We have no indication that they left with all that they needed to come to that Jesus as Savior. But here's what we do know. A few decades later, a follower of that baby grown up, a man named Thomas, Doubting Thomas, from the Gospel of John, is led by God to travel east to the land of Persia. What does he find there? He finds people who have used the Jewish scriptures for years to worship the one true God of Israel, and he's able to connect the dots and get them to Jesus. But I wonder if he came across some old men who had made a long-ago journey. And they said, wait a minute, what? Who? We saw him. And he did what? He died? How? For me? Are you kidding? That's speculative. But we do know that today, there are a million or more in the land of the Magi, modern-day Iraq, who have found the source of true joy in Jesus, even in the face of intense opposition and endless violence and war. And then, of course, in the same area, there are men and women, boys and girls, likely numbering no more than 500,000, who have found their joy in Jesus in Saudi Arabia, where the practice of the Christian religion, even by foreigners, is forbidden, and conversion to Christianity from Islam is a crime that is punishable by death, by the gangs, essentially, that enforce this kind of thing. My point is that people worldwide, gripped by the sadness born of living in a sinful world and gripped by the sadness of personal sinful choices that have come to define them, have found the ultimate source of their joy in Jesus. And so today, if you are here burdened by the weight of sadness or sadness, the way out is to connect with that Jesus who takes us from our sadness to joy by making all things new. By, by transforming our heart from a heart of stone to a soft heart that can be impressed with the good news of Jesus and to make us his own forever. In this season, be set free from sin-sourced sadness to mega joy 
in Christ Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please.